everybody. Uh, hi, I'm Dave Palmer, Director of University Ministry, and uh, Wes Anderson did our, uh, our announcements this morning. Just joking. This is Joe Cutchell. You hate that one? Is that what you said? Thank you. Yeah, one person got that joke. Thanks. Uh, okay. So grateful you're here this morning, uh, and Matt and Sam, wonderful job, as always, uh, with the announcements. Uh, all three of our, our ordained pastors are outside of the state of Colorado this morning, which means that it's going to go down this morning, you know what I mean? So uh, what, stay, what happens in the room, this is like the confidentiality agreement, right? What happens here stays here, okay? It's going to be great. Well, maybe, we'll see. Uh, we've been doing this series uh, uh, called Plato Hearts looking at the life of David, uh, who, if you're not familiar, was um, the second king, uh, well, fleshly king of Israel that we learn a lot about in First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. And we've been talking, just talking about it in the context of the way that God had shaped his heart, uh, like Plato. So I think you get to take the Plato home after the service, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, just my, my name is David, and so I kind of grew up with a bias towards David, Ironically, my mom also contemplated Daniel uh, to, as a name and, and went with David. And growing up, I just, I thought, gosh, I got the better end of the deal with David because he like takes down Goliath and he's great and he's a man after God's own heart. And then I got to seminary and my kind of scrubbed up view of David was diminished very quickly when I actually had to read all of 2 Samuel and the entire life of David. Um, the guy was a real screw up. And so like sincerely, um, I, I think that it's, I, I, I think it's so important that we understand that when we're reading narrative, especially in the Old Testament, like just because this person did some good things does not mean we emulate everything in their life. Do you hear me on that? That's so important, okay? And so um, today we're going to get in, it's a two-chapter story um, for us this morning, and you're going to see really clearly in chapter one, David is not the guy you want to emulate, okay? The other thing that I want to say about this morning is that I believe that this, what, what we'll get into this morning is one of the darkest moments in scripture. And if you are not a believer, this is your first time to church, it's going to get really dark and, and very uncomfortable. If you are a believer and you've been to church and maybe you've heard the story, it's going to get very dark and very uncomfortable, and it's, I, I really believe that the narrator of this text really wanted it to be that way. And so let's get uncomfortable together this morning, shall we? Shall we? That's something that Eric always says. Okay, um, let's pray. We shall. All right. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, uh, we're here this morning, and we um, offer, we, we've begun already our worship in this, this way. We've been doing this for a while here in this building. Um, Lord, we just ask that this morning would not be a morning where the routine of what we might be comfortable with uh, would allow us to skip through what your spirit wants to say to our heart. So help us to be open to what you would want to say to us today. And, and God, if we're coming here this morning and we don't even know you, um, we don't really know why we're here. Maybe our mom or grandma drug us along, but we're here. Um, uh, I, I just pray, uh, myself, Dave, uh, for, for those folks that, that you would have something to say as well, and you would affirm their presence this morning. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 of our story is actually chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and David at this point is, he is the king. He's fully locked in, like he is, you know, um, uh, like Michael Jordan after his sixth title. He is the greatest, 
and he's got a lot of leeway in terms of, I think, the way he thinks of himself and the way that uh, others uh, receive him as king. And the text starts, it says that it was springtime, and apparently in springtime in the, in the Middle East, all the kings took their armies and went to war, except for David. David stayed back in Jerusalem at the, in his palace, and you should know that Anyone, I think, reading this text in the original audience would have known David is off to the wrong start. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's actually shaming himself a bit by deciding that he's not going out with the rest of the kings to play army, um, which actually was pretty serious. I think people are still dying. It's crazy to imagine that this is just what you did when the crocuses come up, Um, but they were off to war. David's back at home hanging out, and what happens is it says that David um, is for whatever reason, he's in the middle of the night, and uh, so he decides he's going to go for a walk on top of the roof of his palace. Now, you got to have a pretty big roof to go for a walk. Um, interesting. So whatever. So he's up there walking around, and you have to, I mean, you can imagine what he's thinking about in the middle of the night, and um, he looks out, and lo and behold, I believe he finds what he's looking for, this beautiful woman bathing naked. That's what the text says. And um, David responds this way, whoa, all right. And he goes downstairs and he finds a couple of messengers and he sends the messengers out to go find out who this beautiful bathing beauty is. And uh, the messengers scurry back and they say, David, her name is Bathsheba. This is kind of like kind of like Tinder, like back in the day. Anyway, swipe right or whatever. Okay, so the messengers come back, and um, that's a bad joke. Um, <laughs> if you don't get it, that's totally okay. It's probably for the best. Um, and, and they come back, and they're like, dude, David, here's the story. It, her name's Bathsheba, and she's married to Uriah. He's one of the mercenary soldiers that we hire to go fight for us. Like, he's really good, you know, in, in the battlefield, and so we pay him an, enough money for him to risk his life to, to fight for us. And so David's like, Yahtzee, okay, he's out, you know, the, the husband's gone, Bathsheba's clearly interested in doing something interesting because why would she be bathing in, in, in view of only my palace? And so he sends for her, and she comes to the palace, and um, they, they do their thing. They commit adultery and, you know, f- fill in the blank uh, there. The, the narrator certainly lets us fill in the blank of what happened. And when David was um, done with Bathsheba, he sent her back to her house. And that's the end of the story. Oh, wait, wait, no. For David, he thought that was the end of the story. And, uh, but it turns out Bathsheba gets pregnant. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Okay, now now there's a problem for David because um, David lives in in an honor-shame society and it would be shameful for him to have had a child with somebody who was not his wife. So guilt is on the horizon for David and he wants to cut it off at the pass. So, this is what David does. He's got a few options. One option is that what he could have done, because he was super wealthy at this point, he's the king of Israel, what he could have done is he could have um, had somebody go to the battlefield with a big box full of money and say, yo, here's the deal. King David wants to actually, he doesn't, he wants your wife 
you don't get to be married to um, Bathsheba anymore, so here's a divorce settlement, and it'll be all good. But he doesn't do that. That would have been totally socially acceptable. What he does instead is he calls on Uriah to do him a solid, do him a big favor. So he sends for Uriah to come back to the palace. And here's the thing. We, when I read this text and understood this text growing up, and even f- probably until I got into this um, really helpful book this last week, I just assumed that most people didn't know what was going on with David and Bathsheba. That is not true. Like, you don't sneak out of the palace with a couple messengers and bring a woman back through the entire palace into the chamber of the king and people not know what's going on. David has really no shame about the action he's taken with Bathsheba. What he has done is a totally normal thing to do if you're the king of a kingdom in the Middle East at this point. And candidly, probably a a powerful political ruler today. He wanted to sleep with a beautiful woman, and he did. No big deal. So he's got a problem on his hands, though, because she's pregnant. So he calls in Uriah, 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 yo, dude, I'm so glad you, know, you're, you came, came home from battle, so grateful. How's it going? And Uriah knows. Uriah knows that his wife is pregnant and that she slept with King David. Uriah, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, the Amalekites, they're tough, aren't they? You know? um, and Uriah's like, yeah. David's like, hey, you know, you've been such a great warrior for us. We so appreciate you coming, you know, from the land of the Hittites to fight with us. Um, I think what would be really great is for you just to take a small vacation, head home, and um, enjoy all the pleasantries of home, you know, a nice home-cooked meal, and maybe, you know, sleep with your wife, because that'd be cool, and, um, and wouldn't that be great, Dave, you know, wouldn't that be great, Uriah? And Uriah says this, he's like, dude, Every warrior in this nation is at battle right now. Hint, hint, except for you, dude. Every one of us is at battle right now, and none of them are at home eating a home-cooked meal and sleeping with their wives. Do you think I would disgrace my army by doing that? Which is interesting, because he's a mercenary. Do you think I would disgrace my army? So instead of going home, what does Uriah do? He goes and finds a very private place to sleep. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He goes to the gate of the palace and sets up camp so everybody knows he is not playing along with David's game. Everybody knows. So the next day, David's like, ah, pickles. That didn't work out. Hey, Uriah, come back. Um, You know, we've got this really great dinner tonight, and um, we just got some really great wine in, and so I'd love to share that with you. And so the text says that David got Uriah drunk. I mean, Uriah is lit, as the college students would say. And, And David is assuming because he's blackout drunk, no problem, we'll just maybe escort him back home. And any decent drunk person is gonna wanna do what you know, so it's going to be cool. But even in this blackout stupor, Uriah still refuses to enter his own home, and he sleeps outside with the servants. Well, at this point, David realizes very clearly Uriah is not playing his game. And so he has a, 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 a commands written in a sealed envelope, 
And he gives it to Uriah to carry all the way back to Joab, who is commanding the armies, which what David should have been doing, but Joab's doing it instead. So Uriah literally carries his death sentence with him and hands it to Joab. And the death sentence went like this. David instructed Joab, hey, come up with this really risky offensive where we send a whole bunch of troops to a place that we know they're all going to probably die because of the way that the city's fortified. And have Uriah right at the front of that and make sure that when the, when the battle gets really heavy that guys pull away so that Uriah is sure to be struck down in battle. Well, guess what? It's the first plan that David executes besides his plan with Bathsheba, the original love affair, that actually works. Uriah dies heroically in battle and a bunch of other men around him die too. And a messenger goes scurrying back to the king and he says, hey, tough news out there on the battlefront today. You wouldn't believe what happened in this really gnarly offensive. A bunch of guys died, including Uriah. Ah, bummer, Uriah's dead. And so David does what he wants to do, which is Bathsheba, you know, you need to mourn your husband. He died at battle today. Really sorry about that. And then once you're done doing your mourning, um, why don't you come to my palace, which she does, and they get married. And then his wife has his child. And everything is okay. Because David has maintained his honor. He has had a child with his own wife. And he feels great. Problem solved. Isn't it good being king? And that's the way that David feels. Except the narrator points out at the end of this chapter, chapter one of our story this morning, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter two. Everything was fine. See, in an honor-shame society, you do not... Ex- we think about, when we think about guilt and shame, we assume that we will internalize and reflect on our own actions and come to the proper feelings of guilt based on the things we've done. In an honor-shame society, which all of Scripture is rooted in, in the context in, and most of the world today, you do not understand guilt until the outside world instructs you it's time for you to feel guilty, okay? So David literally doesn't feel guilty until the prophet Nathan walks in to the palace courts. And he tells this little story. There were two men. One was filthy rich. He was like the Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, of that time. That's the guy who owns uh, Amazon. He's got a lot of money right now, all right? And Jeff, man, he has, I shouldn't connect it to Jeff, sorry. Okay, not trying to get personal here or anything. Okay, so super rich guy has like, lots of livestock. And, and, and at this time, livestock is money. And he's got lots of animals, tons of animals, so many animals, cows and chickens and such. We're going to go to the Boulder Fair, Parker and I, this afternoon. Think about Boulder Fair to like times 100, right? Like all the animals. I think there are animals there. Okay, so rich guy with lots of animals. And the, dude number two, there's another guy, and he's got exactly one animal, a female sheep, a ewe. And this man, because he only has one, prizes and treasures this you in a, almost like a creepy way. 
The way that David talks about it, he, he holds, and, uh, holds on to the sheep at night in his home, protecting it as if it was his own daughter. Kind of weird, but you could imagine if you only had one animal and, current, and, 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 and livestock is currency, that's all you have that you would treasure that. And that this man does. So the story goes this. Super rich man unexpectedly has a guest over to his house. Surprise, oh, we should throw a party for the guest. That's what we do. Hospitality, right? That's what we've been learning here this year. So practicing hospitality, that's what he does. And he thinks, gosh, what would taste really good? What would be really good is a nice lamb steak. And I know the, just the lamb. And so he goes and he takes the lamb, the one lamb for the, from, from the poor man. And he slaughters it and he feeds it to his guests. And they have a great party. Now, David is feeling probably a lot like you and I as we hear this story. David is fuming. Are you kidding me? Dude, this other guy has like thousands of sheep, and they all taste better than the one that he slaughtered. This is egregious, Nathan. What in the world? What kind of story? That man should be punished mercilessly. And then Nathan says, David, you are that man. In that moment, the weight of his sin falls on him for the very first time. And here's our text this morning, verse 13 of chapter 12 in 2 Samuel. It says this, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, because you know, David, you know better than anyone else who the Lord is, that the Lord has put you in a place of incredible power and authority and giving you unbelievable blessing, and yet you have shown utter contempt for him. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. I I do not know if there is sorrow as deep as the death of a child. Maybe you know that taste. I got a little taste of it. A year ago, we hosted um, a, a service for a child who was just a few months older than Parker when he died. Parker is our two-year-old boy. And I, I passed out bulletins. I didn't know hardly anyone in the room. But even thinking about the sorrow of the loss of that child, that sticks with me today. And this is, this is David at his very lowest. Have you ever been so sick with sadness that you could taste the bile of your stomach coming up to the back of your throat? You know, so low and sad that your whole body aches. 
and your stomach is wrenching, but you cannot eat food. And David is low, literally on the ground in sackcloth, living in this death that hasn't even happened yet. Weighing, knowing his child is dying. And at the same time, face to face with his own guilt. David is defining the bottom of the pit. The elders of the house, this is verse 17, stood beside him to get up from the ground. But he refused. And he would not eat any food with them. David wrote a psalm, and I think this probably captures this moment. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. The only, the only lower moment, the only lower place for David to go is to kill himself, they think. How can we tell him? David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is he dead? Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. <sighs> then David got up from the ground. After he washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. I think this might have been the prayer that he prayed that day. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced in the pit? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. And unthinkably, he sings, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent, Lord my God. I will praise you forever. Then he went to his own home, his own house, and he requested that they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? See, any good Jew at the death of their son would have been in mourning with sackcloth on, on the ground, paying mourners to come and wail and to make um, to, to embody the sadness that he felt. But here David is, 
showered and eating. Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What an unbelievably uncomfortable story. The depths of guilt and sadness and questions. And what I'll tell you right now is if you're looking for some really great theologizing for you to feel really comfortable when you walk out these doors because of this passage, I will not be able to do that, nor will I do that. Chapter one of this story, David demonstrates to us what not to do. Clearly, do not do what David did. Do not do what David did. Jesus said, what good is it for you to gain the whole world? And David had gained the whole world, had he not? He was the most powerful man in his uh, influence. He was the king of Israel in the heyday of his nation. People loved him as king. He was a successful warrior. He was an artist, and he got everything that he wanted, including Bathsheba. But Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world if you lose yourself? And David had lost himself gaining the whole world. So do not do we shall not live like David. Do not exploit power and privilege to get what you want at the expense of manipulating other people. That is certainly our temptation today. Don't do it. Chapter 2, David gives us something to work with. It's a model we can follow. See, there is a way through the death of sin, of our sin, that leads to life. There is a way through the death of sin that leads to life. And it's almost impossible to imagine, I think impossible to imagine, that David could have ever believed that was true when he was literally at the bottom of the pit as his child was dying. But he shows us that there is a way through that leads to life. And here's how it goes. The first thing David did is that he owned what, he's, what he did. Own what you've done. What David does not do is deflect blame. When Nathan tells this, this brutal story and the weight of David's sin comes crashing down on him, David does not do what I think is knee-jerk for so many of us to do when we are called out on the carpet, which is to deflect blame. No, oh, dude, it's, well, it, ah, I mean, I guess I kind of did that, but like Bathsheba was like naked and such, and you know, women these days, really, if they were more modest, like it would, I would be in a better spot. Hmm. Deflecting blame, right? Oh, if Uriah just would have played along, like this wouldn't have been, the, we, you know, the baby wouldn't be dead right now, whatever. It would have been so much better. David absolutely owns 
what he has done. And we know this because of the next thing that he does. David grieves the impact of his consequences. The consequences of David's sin are literally breathtaking. If they're not breathtaking to you, I would suggest maybe you're not human or you're not paying attention. An utter gut punch David endures because of his own choices. Nobody else's. They're his. See, God does not wholly spare us from sin's curse. God will, God will forgive us, indeed. But forgiveness does not absolve consequence fully. Man, so I, I, would, I would say this. When I really screw up with Aaron, you know, and I, I say things that are super hurtful out of anger and pride, and she forgives me, I'm so grateful. What I wish would happen is that the words would literally be drawn back into my mouth, right, and be reabsorbed into my, like, terribleness, and the, the impact had, would never, you know, be at play, but that's not actually what happens. My wife is still hurt. The consequences of our actions are still out there. And what David does, he does not minimize them. He does not ignore them. He does not deflect them. It's interesting. This is a great text for the issue of theodicy if you want to rail against the biblical God. This is a great text for it. What David does not do is he does not get mad at God and say, you are a terrible God. That's not what David does. He grieves the impact of his choices. I would tell you as a, um, a, a person, a college pastor who works with, with college students today, that what I observe, and I can't say this for every generation, and maybe it's true for every parent, but what I see for sure today, so many parents want to absorb the consequences of their child's actions, believing that it's going to be better off for them in the long run. You know, oh, you know, well, you, did, you cheated on that test, but whatever, like, we can work it out, like, one of the, the first moments that I, um, first week, I was the director at Malibu uh, Presbyterian, and the student walks in my office, and I only saw him that one time, and he walks in my office, and he's just shaking. I'm like, oh man, I'm tossing the deep end here. I, I don't have any training for this. And this, this kid says, I almost died last night. Well, I'm glad that you're not dead. I'm glad we're talking. What's up? He said, well, I got, I got really drunk last night, and I was driving through the canyon, Malibu Canyon. If you know the canyon road, it is a dangerous road if you're sober. And people die on that road all the time. All the time is an exaggeration, but often, yearly, people die just because it's a dangerous road. And imagine driving it totally drunk. And this student had run off the road drunk and plowed right into a tree, and the tree literally consumed the entire passenger side of his car. So he was inches from death, but totally spared. And he comes into my office, and he is so shaken that he almost died. Well, what's going on? Well, he's like, well, the good news is, you know, my dad hired this really great attorney, and it looks like we're going to get out of the DUI charges. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how helpful is that going to be for you? I didn't say this to him, but, you know, I just kind of smile and nod. God doesn't, God doesn't do this for David. And candidly, he's not going to do this for us either. Even in, in the new covenant, the new covenant with Jesus doesn't protect us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus dies for us so that the, 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 the lasting impact of our relationship with God um, will be rectified. But, but if I go off and I, I, if I 
kill somebody today, there will be consequence, right? Grieve the impact. Don't minimize it. Don't ignore it. The other thing that I, I just want to say, um, maybe, maybe this is something that's catching you as you sit here this morning, that this text does not, get, does not create a universal precedent that any time you commit adultery and have a love child, that God is going to kill that love child as a consequence. That is not what this text says, for the record. Okay, own what you've done. Grieve the impact. Accept forgiveness. This might be the most unthinkable thing. Well, the next two are pretty unthinkable. Accept forgiveness. David is confident. David is confident that God is still going to forgive him and has forgiven him. So often we sin when we really, when we really sin, right? When we really do it good. Or perhaps we realize that we are serial sinners and that for years we have been living this certain way, harming somebody in a in particular way. We, um, we see our sin in such an incredible accumulation with so much hurt that we cannot actually believe that we are forgiven. That is not what David does. David takes Nathan's word at face value, believing that God had and will forgive him. He gets up and he worships in the temple. And then, and then this, is, this, is, this is outstanding. There is a way through death of sin that leads to life. Accept forgiveness. And then, unthinkably, as David owns what he's done, as he grieves the impact and he accepts forgiveness, he embraces the truth that God is not done with him. God is not done um, creating blessing and life for him. This was not in the assigned text, but this is what happens immediately after what we read this morning. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. Right after going to the temple and eating and, and washing up, he, he comforted his wife. And then he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Shlomo, or Solomon, which actually means like peace, it's a variant of Shalom. The Lord loved him. Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to come to name him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. Embrace God's continued blessing. Now, what incredible faith David had, and this is, I think, a moment where I'm like, okay, I can start to see why David is a man after God's own heart in this, in this moment. He, he clearly um, understands something powerful and true about, about God and his intentions for him. But, but David didn't know that promise through the lens of Jesus, and, and we do. If you are not convinced that even despite your sin, despite your sinfulness, despite the wretchedness that, that we produce, the death that we produce by our own choosing, despite that, that God intends blessing for you, Know it to be true because of Jesus Christ. If you are appalled at the death of David's son, which I'm appalled at, David's appalled at, everyone's appalled at the death, then imagine this. A God who has so much love for us in our sinfulness that he would allow, in fact, command out of love his own son 
to absorb not his own consequences, but our consequences of our sin so that we would have life and be able to embrace the life and blessing, the shalom, the wholeness that God has always intended for us. And so David does not stay in the pit, but he moves on, living the rest of his life, believing that God was not done with him. There is a way through the death of sin that leads to life. Now, friends, um, good information doesn't do much if it just sits in our brain and then we go to lunch. Just because you've, you've heard some, some nice ideas from, from a pastor or a director or whatever I am, it doesn't mean that your life is going to change. What changes in our life, what, what moves the needle to transformation is when we allow truth to be absorbed in our heart. And one of the most important ways that the Lord does that is through um, us sitting in the Holy Spirit in prayer. And so I'm going to ask Kelsey um, and Matt to come and to lead us in a time um, of prayer um, where we actually walk through what David models as a way from the death of sin into life um, through prayer. And here's what I want to tell you. We are going to allow for some very uncomfortably long silence. So squirm. It's okay. We're Presbyterians. We don't like it, the silence. But we're going to do it anyway. And my encouragement is for you to allow this.